Good morning. It's good to be with you all again today. My family always loves coming here to worship with you all. My kids ask about it often. Um, our sermon text today comes from an oft-neglected book, the Song of Songs, often called the Song of Solomon as well. And our sermon text today will be from the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. And I'd like to read the text again briefly due to its brevity and also its grand beauty. It's one of the more beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open, if you would, throughout the sermon as we'll reference these few verses often. So this is the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Now, there are multiple signs that dot the walls of the hallways of the college that I teach at. They're all over the place. And they're usually printed on these hyper yellow or hyper pink or hyper blue massive poster boards. And on the signs, they say in big bold type font, sex. And then, in much smaller font, underneath the word sex, you'll see something like, now that I have your attention, don't forget that finals start next week. Or don't forget that the drama club is putting on a performance next Thursday. They'll say a myriad of different things. And that is because sex, even the word, is something that is eye-catching. And it draws one in to read the text a little bit more carefully. Well, the book from which we will have our sermon today, The Song of Songs, is one that we can say employs that exact same strategy. It screams sex on almost every one of its pages throughout all of the eight chapters of the book, and then it draws the careful reader, the attentive reader. It draws the church in to take a little bit closer look at the text. The poem, it's a poem, it's certainly about sex, both the desire for sex, the longing for sex, the consummation of sex, and then the aftermath of sex between a man and a woman. But it's hard to see how any careful exegete of this book, of this song, of this poem, it's hard to see how any of us would miss what the church has always historically seen as quite clear, that the poem is also allegorical. It's an allegory of God's love for the church, of Christ's love for the church of God's love for the individual soul. And the way that the poem approaches this, many times, is by talking about sex. Now, sex is good, sex is wonderful, and sex is certainly alluring. So my question for the church is, why is it that we aren't drawn to this book? Why aren't we drawn to this poem? I'm 33 years old, and I've been in the church, thank God, for my entire life grew up in a Christian family. I cannot recall a single time hearing a sermon from the Song of Songs. 
I scrolled through my home church's web archives, Westminster Presbyterian Church. There's not a single sermon on the Song of Songs. I preached recently at my grandmother's church, Christian Missionary Alliance Church, went through her web archives, not a single song or sermon on the Song of Songs. I went through your web archive here, couldn't find a single sermon on it. And I went to a myriad of different churches that I've preached at, and I've always done the same thing. Now, I want to see if anyone's, nobody preaches on the book. I asked my wife, she's been in the church her whole life, have you ever heard a sermon on the Song of Songs? She said, I can't recall. Now, the remarkable and shocking thing about what seems to be this normative practice of the church now is that it's historically a brand new phenomenon. The historic church, the apostolic church, our church, the church of God, has historically loved preaching on the Song of Solomon. This book, for the first 1,800 years of the church's existence, was the most preached upon book in the entire Bible with the exclusion of the Psalms. You heard that right. For 1,800 years, the Song of Songs was preached on more than the Gospels, more than Ephesians, more than Romans. The only thing that was preached upon more were the Psalms. The great John Chrysostom, you might be familiar with John Chrysostom, he preached countless sermons on the book. St. Bernard of Clairvaux preached 86 consecutive sermons on the book, then died. He was on chapter 3. There are eight chapters in the book. Now, my question for the church is, how can this possibly be the case? We have this deep, rich history of textual exposition of this poem, and then all of a sudden, boom, we just stop. Nobody preaches on it anymore. What happened? Did we instantly get more intelligent? Did we have some newfound revelation? Did we instantly get less intelligent? Probably more likely the case. Well. I'll offer a potential answer. There certainly was this dramatic cultural shift that happened in the 18th century. The Enlightenment ushered in deism, a view that God is far removed from his creation, and he's certainly not intimately involved with his creation. And the Enlightenment mob mentality frightened the church into abandoning almost all of their allegorical readings of scripture. The church started to say things like, no, if we say that the Song of Solomon is allegorical, then aren't we just on a slippery slope to saying that the life and works of Jesus, that those are just allegories too, that he wasn't actually God, that those events of his life didn't actually happen? And if the poem is not allegorical and it's just about sex between a man and a woman, how valuable is it? So we just pushed it away and resigned it to the dustbin, and nobody preaches on it anymore. Now, this overreaction to the intellectual assault, and it was an intellectual assault of modernity, coupled with our cultural churchish prudishness, which is a pushback against the over-sexualization of the secular world, they all play a role in the widespread ecclesiological abandonment of this poem. But I'd like to challenge us today to remember that the cosmos is God's and everything in it is good. We just pervert things, right? Food is good, but we're gluttonous. Alcohol is good, 
but we abuse it. Sex is good, but we misuse it so easily that the church sometimes locks it away, hides talking about it. The church even hides talking about what the Bible has to say about sex, and the Bible has a lot to say about sex. And it's not just the Song of Solomon that talks about marital bliss and sex as a way of describing God's relationship to us. It's all over Scripture. It's splattered across the pages of the Old Testament. It's splattered across the pages of the New Testament. Listen to the words of Isaiah. Isaiah says, For the Lord delights in you. And how does the Lord delight in you? He delights in you as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea, the prophet says, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me master. Famously, and we heard some of the words today from Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Why? Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Then famously in Ephesians 5, after all of the talk of husbands and wives, Paul wants to make it really, really clear for all of us. And he just comes out and says, I know this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Don't be confused. That's what I'm talking about here. Now, that's just a sampling. The language is everywhere in the Bible. But nowhere is it quite as explicit as in the Song of Solomon. And this has given many theological exegetes, many pastors, great pause. The great church father, Origen, he calls this book, and especially the text that we talk about today, he says, this is a book for the mature. He said, solid food is for the mature who can discern, but let the children in their faith get their food from other books of the Bible. He says, young Christians, you can't handle the Song of Solomon. Well, I'm going to encourage us today to try our best to chew on some of this solid food and try to digest as many nutrients that we can. So we're looking today at Song of Songs 8, chapter 5. I'm sorry, Song of Songs 8, verses 5 through 7, which is the climax of this often erotic poem. But the climax of the poem is not sexual. It's not the consummating of the love between the man and the woman. That's already happened earlier in the poem. As we look at this passage, which is, once again, it's the teleological endgame of the poem. It's the point towards which the poem has been moving from the very beginning. I want to look at the text under two headings. The bride and the bridegroom. The bride and the bridegroom. So first, let's look at the bride. The bride, the woman, she's the primary speaker of the poem. There are three speakers in the poem. There's the bride, the groom, and the daughters of Jerusalem. But over two-thirds of the entire poem comes from the mouth of the bride, comes from the mouth of the woman. She's holding court, and right from the outset of the poem, she's talking. The very first words of the poem are hers. They're probably the most famous words in the poem. And they say, or she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. This, right from the outset of the poem, is the woman longing deeply for the man. This is the bride-to-be 
longing deeply for her future groom. This is Israel longing deeply for God to tabernacle with them. This is the soul longing deeply to see the very face of God. Whatever is going on here, it is a desire for deep, intimate, personal union. And the cry of the woman, the yearning of the woman, which will continue throughout the poem, it will not go unheard, but we need to remember most of the speaking is done by her. She is seeking and imploring for union, and the language that she uses in imploring for union is garden language. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and taste its choice fruits. She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. There's perpetual talk of fruit and pomegranates and bushes and trees and all sorts of garden stuff going on. Now the garden imagery should immediately draw the attentive reader's mind immediately to the Garden of Eden. And why is that? Because paradise is nothing over and above intimacy with God. Paradise is intimacy with God. Heaven is intimacy with God. Remember back to Genesis 3. That's where we get the story of the fall of man. And we see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do Adam and Eve do right after the fall? They hide. Why? The text says because they were naked. The closeness, the closeness I should say, and the intimacy that they had with God before the fall had been betrayed. And now what had been the chief source of their pride, the height of their entire humanity, walking in the presence of God, that brought them fear and trepidation. They had committed adultery. And now their nakedness was their great shame. Right Before the fall, Adam and Eve had union and communion with God in their nakedness. Right before God. There was nothing to hide, no need for layers, no pretenses, no mediation, none of that stuff. They were God's and he was theirs. But Adam was an adulterer. And his adultery turned his nakedness and our nakedness into a great shame. Now this story of infidelity, of adultery, keeping us from the presence of God, it's a constant motif throughout all of Scripture. It's not just in the Garden of Eden. In Ezekiel 16, I remember Pastor Spanger preached through the book of Ezekiel a few years ago here. So maybe you'll recall this passage. In Ezekiel 16, we see Ezekiel describing the way that the Lord found Israel. And he found her, he says, as a small child. And then he watched her mature into a beautiful woman. This is Ezekiel 16, verse 7. Listen to these words. I made you flourish. This is the Lord speaking of Israel. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then later in the chapter, we see God's sort of adorning Israel with oils and perfume and jewelry. He's doting on her because he loves her so much. Only to have his love spoiled by Israel's shocking and unconscionable infidelity. Later in the same chapter, Ezekiel 16, 7, 17, 
These are the words of God. He speaks to Israel and he says, You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. Then later in the same chapter in verse 32, he says, Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. It's the language God uses to talk about his relationship to Israel. Adultery keeping keeping their relationship from consummating, keeping it from face-to-face union. So back to our text. The woman in our text, here in the Song of Psalms, her desire for the man is a picture of Israel's desire, of our desire, of the church's desire, to be reunited to our husband. But more than that, it's a desire to have our very virginity restored. It's a picture of a return to paradise, to return to the presence of God, to have access to the holy place, and to walk right into the holy of holies. Right? This is the Christian's desire, to be in the house of God and to be in his very presence. As the psalmist says, how lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. That's where he seeks to be, seeks to be there without mediation seeks to be returned to the garden. But the woman in our text, she must wait. Her position and our position, the church's position, is one of waiting, of wilderness wandering, hoping and praying for a return to the garden. Longing and groaning, we cry out in the desert, come Lord Jesus, come. Come Lord Jesus, come. Let my beloved Come to his garden. Restore order. Remember your promises, God, to be our God, that we might be your people. Your face, Lord, we seek. This is what the church cries out throughout our wilderness wandering. The woman's position, the bride's position, and the church's position is the same position that Job was in. Remember Job, right? He's stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He's tormented in body and soul. And for 38 long chapters, he cries out for the Lord. He's lamenting for 38 straight chapters. That's the bulk of the book. And such is the bulk of our lives. Such is the bulk of the church's existence. We cry out for the Lord to answer us. And eventually, if you remember the story of Job, God finally speaks. And when he does... He speaks in the infinite might of the whirlwind, right? He speaks in and through the bridegroom. And that brings us to our second point, the groom. As we said before, this passage is the climax of the entire poem. Look, if you would, at verse 5. Verse 5 reads, Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? So here we see the bride coming up out of her wilderness wandering, out of her toils and tribulations and the tumult of her war, as the great hymn says. And what is the bride doing after all of her wilderness wandering, after all the tumult, after all the trials, after all the suffering of the church age? She's no longer longing for her beloved. She's no longer longing for the man, but she is leaning on him. Her head is tucked into his chest, secured and ever so deeply loved. 
right? This is a love and a union, marital union, that far surpasses the erotic passion of young lovers in beauty and in grandeur. Look at verse 6 of the text. The bride finally having her groom, finally being secured to them, tucked into his chest. What does she say? Look at verse 6. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. She seeks to be a seal on her lover's arm. She wants to be publicly displayed. Her devotion, her passion, and her love are not personal, private feelings, but they are radical public declarations. Right? When you marry your wife or you marry your husband, you not only cherish her privately, but you put one of these things on. Right? You put a wedding ring on so the whole world knows I am sealed to this other one. Israel's desire, as seen here, the church's desire is to be sealed to Yahweh. The church's desire is to be sealed to God in Christ. And this is on public display to the whole world in your baptism. It's on public display when you partake of the Lord's Supper. It's on public display when you partake of, of all of the intricacies and union and public membership of the corporate body of Christ. There is no private Christianity. It's a public affair. It's a corporate affair. And we see here, the woman's love is a deeply jealous love because our God's love is a jealous love. He desires total devotion and he will suffer no divided loyalties. Set me as a seal on your body. He's devoted to his people and his people only. And why is that? That is because love desires the fullness of the other. If you don't desire the fullness of the other, you don't love the other. It desires both body and soul. No substitutes. There is no lukewarm Laodicean love. Look again at the extent of the love we see in this text. It says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for your love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. There are many people for whom this world that we live in now is a loveless place. And even for those of us who have the beautiful thing of the love of another one, does it take a flood to put out the flame of that love? It seems like a light drizzle sometimes can knock out the flame of our love for one another quite easily. If you've been married for any period of time, I've been married for almost a decade now, so I'm sure some of you have me beat. But you know that the mood can change real fast. And it doesn't take floodwaters to knock out the love that you have for one another. Just a little mist and and you're sitting there wondering, like, what, where's the love? What happened here? But this love, the love that Yahweh has for his people, the love that Christ has for his church, the poem, the, the psalmist and, and, and the, the author of this poem, he says, that love is as strong as 
death. When death comes, no one can resist it. Right? It is relentless and maniacal. The grave never loses its single-minded focus on swallowing each and every one of us up. It is exact and perfect at its job. There's no recalls when it comes to death. And death is the only thing remotely worthy for the poet to compare the love of God to. The love of God described here, he says, is flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This love is the very being, the essence of the triune God. And that is because God's love is God, and you can't quench God. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. The prophet Elijah, he knew well the consuming fire and the consuming love of God. In 1 Kings, I'm sure you're familiar with the famous story, Elijah puts the prophets of Baal to the test. He calls to them and he says, let's build a couple of altars and we'll put a, a sacrifice on the altar and you can call to Baal, call to him to set the sacrifice on fire. And the prophets of Baal, they get there and they cry out to Baal to set the sacrifice on fire and they're met with silence. Nothing happens. And then Elijah, in typical Elijah fashion, he starts to mock them in quite hilarious fashion. He calls out and says, well, maybe your God got lost. Maybe Baal's lost. Call to him again, he says. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Then, Elijah goes to his altar. And we find this in 1 Kings 18. And listen to these words. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked all the water out of the trench. And all the storms of this world, all the trials, all of your personal failures and shortcomings, your and my perpetual idolatry and adultery cannot quench the flames of God's love. This is the love that Paul had in mind famously in Romans 8 when he says, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes through a litany of things. Can any of those separate us from the love of Christ? So persecution or famine or sword or nakedness? says no his love is stronger than death and all the waters of the created order cannot quench it as the author of our text today says how foolish would we be to turn away from love no matter what we were offered in preparation for this sermon I came across an incredible story 
of the great Presbyterian preacher, James Henley Thornwell. He died in 1859. And prior to his passing, he had the opportunity to announce the wedding of his daughter, Nancy, Nancy Thornwell. And in the weeks leading up to the wedding, the hundreds of people that were traveling to the wedding of Nancy Thornwell, they wound up at a funeral as opposed to a wedding as she took ill from cholera, typhoid, and she began a rapid and quick demise. Thornwell, overcome, emotionally destroyed by this event, came to his daughter's bedside in her waning moments. And he said, oh my dear daughter, such tragedy. She replied, father, do not weep. I know my savior. He said, but this was to be your wedding, your whole life now before you. She, the youth, though with far greater maturity, said, Father, but I now go to a greater groom that I am prepared to meet. Nancy Witherspoon Thornwell was laid to rest in her wedding gown, and her tombstone reads, you can go visit it to this day down in Tennessee, as a bride prepared for her groom. Well, the love of Nancy's God is that of a fire that devours the waters of chaos and death. And it breathes new, resurrected life into the beloved. And this poem, laced throughout with its grand sexual physicality, certainly points to the spiritual relation of God and his church. But we should remember that the analogy does not stop there. One great scholar notes that the literary sex that we see in the poem and real sex are both allegorical. Right? God didn't just give us the Song of Solomon to show us something of his love. He gave us sex, and he gave us all the physicality of this world to show us his love. And the writer of the book of Hebrews makes that painstakingly clear in chapter 8 when he says that the heavenly temple is not modeled after the earthly temple, but the earthly temple is modeled after the heavenly one. Right? This reality is just a foretaste. The love, the joy, and marital bliss that we may have here, it's just a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. But until that day, we wait for the groom to come to his garden. We wait like Nancy Thornwell, as a bride prepared for her groom. And the church cries while waiting, Come, Lord Jesus, come, that our wilderness wandering might end. Come, Jesus, come, that we might rest in you. Set us as a seal on your arm. Bring us into your fullness. For your love is greater than all of the riches of the world. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, you have blessed us with every blessing but your church still groans. We groan in expectation of what is to come. Father God, we long to see your face. We long to be in your courts with you. So we pray, Father God, that you would come, that you would come to your garden, that you would vindicate your church, that you would vindicate your martyrs, that you, you would restore justice, you would restore order, and you would bring your children home. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen.